understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm doing something a little bit different today, even though it is something I think we really, really need to talk about. Sometimes I really identify people that I feel like are going to be a great fit for you in my audience, and they can really give you something to walk away with to empower you on your journey and sometimes I feel like I just hunt people down to talk about things that I always ponder on and one thing that I'm always super curious about is this insane divorce rate that everyone has been talking about I'm encountering too many millennials right now well not right now but prior that I always felt like are so scared of marriage simply because there's this this 50% divorce rate hanging over everyone's head out there. Um, And so I was so excited to hear recently in the article that was released that since 2000 and I think it was 2008, 2009, I don't want to speak uh, wrong, but that there was a new um, census that came out that said that the divorce rate dropped dramatically thanks to they were accrediting millennials that it dropped from 50% to 18% simply in the the evidence was stackable they were basically just saying that millennials are waiting longer to get married maybe that we're more self-aware and that we're we're choosing wisely we're making that we're making sure that we have our degrees and we're somewhat financially stable before we go into a marriage and we're just waiting a lot longer so i thought this was so cool because uh, marriage and divorce is something I talk about often as a th- you know 29 30 year old with a lot of my friends and so my guest today is a not only a family law lawyer who deals with primarily with divorce but she's also a divorce coach because she dealt with so many cases where she saw people um, you know fall apart after divorce and she men- mentions a very powerful statistic during this interview about how uh, when you pull up the list of the most stressful things to deal with in life ever, number one is the death of a sibling or a family member, and number two is divorce. So I've never been divorced, but I couldn't imagine. I just, my heart went out to my audience or any of my friends or family that have ever went div- went through the divorce, and I overlooked it as just like a commonality. And I hope moving forward, it's not something that we're dealing with more often, but less often. But I thought it would be really cool to deep dive with someone that deals with this on a daily basis and not so much honoring divorce, but maybe planning in case that were to ever happen so women don't find them or men don't find themselves so vulnerable, but how to deal with the shame and the embarrassment of failure afterwards and even in relationships, um, choosing wisely and wanting to know if the people that she deals with on a daily basis, does it seem like these things could be resolved before before people get to divorce? So this interview was so unique. I am so excited. You guys are going to really, really love this one, especially if you are looking for a serious relationship or you're in one right now that you're looking to be married. Check this one out. And I am so excited to welcome my guest, Miss Leanne Townsend. Welcome to another episode of the Stranded Podcast. I am super excited about my guest today, who is a family law attorney and a divorce coach. And I found this topic to be so interesting because in the world we live in with instant gratification, to date, not to date, to get married, or, you know, fight up against the divorce rate that was once 50% um, and whether or not to get married and how to stay married. And I just thought this was so unique. So I'm so excited about today's guest. Let's welcome Miss Leanne Townsend. 
Hi there. I'm so happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully, I hope this isn't a depressing topic for everyone. But I know it's something that needs to be discussed because we talk about marriage and we don't talk about staying married and, and we certainly don't plan for divorce, but it is something people do deal with. It's very much a reality. And, you know, the statistics are high. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of marriages do end in divorce. So, you know, it is a reality for many people out there. So it's good to talk about it. Yes. And I'm, I'm always open to talking about this because I couldn't, everybody knows that the, the whole purpose behind this podcast is to push you through that stuck phase. And when I saw your specialty and read your amazing blog that I need you to share later on is I was like, wow, there's so many people that are going through this and their lives change indefinitely because of it. So yes, sure. For you to go into the coaching realm for this and probably help women survive this insane time in their life. It's probably so needed. I think it's very much needed and it, you know it's very rewarding to, to help people through it um, and I think people underestimate how devastating divorce can be um, and you know the research shows that when you look at life's most stressful events they rank death of a spouse as number one and they rank divorce as number two so that gives you some perspective on how stressful it is for people so it's so important to have the proper supports to make it easier for you as you go through it wow that's a that's crazy Woo. And to know that one in two people could be dealing with one of the most stressful things in life ever. That's crazy. It is crazy. Well, Leanne, tell us, uh, besides family law attorney, besides divorce coach, tell us a little bit about you and and how you got into this. Um, Well, my journey is uh, was not always in family law. I started out uh, my career as a prosecutor. Um, working as we call it here in uh, in Canada, a crown attorney. It's the same thing as being like an assistant district attorney in the U.S. And so I worked for over 16 years um, prosecuting people charged with criminal offenses. And I developed an expertise in domestic violence. And so I worked with a lot of abused, primarily abused women, children. Um, there were some male victims too, though. There's definitely females who are aggressors at times and male and male victims. And I did a lot of work in that area, um, prosecuting every type of offense. But I re- after over 16 years, I reached a point where I wasn't enjoying it anymore. I didn't feel like I was helping people um, because the victims often hated me because they wanted the charges withdrawn and I wasn't allowed or able to withdraw them. And so it just wasn't rewarding to me. Saw a lot of very tragic things. And so I left my job and I took some time off to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I have a now 17 year old son and a 15 year old daughter and they were younger then, but I took some time to enjoy, you know, being home with them a little bit and just being primarily a mom. But I knew I, I, wanted to go, you know, back to work and I needed to, quite frankly, I didn't don't have the finances that I wouldn't be able to. So I started, I wasn't sure if I even wanted to go back to law, to be honest, because I really wasn't enjoying it. And ironically, I'm somebody I like to get along with people, I don't like conflict. And so here I am in this career that's all about conflict. And it's so adversarial. So I wasn't sure if I even wanted to do it anymore. So I worked with my own coach. And I found, you know, I really found it helpful. And then I started thinking, you know, hey, I would really like to do this. Um, I wonder if this is something that that I can do. And so I looked into getting some training and some courses and I got a certification in it and decided to do my do it myself. And I just found it, it just seemed to naturally evolve into this area of divorce. And I launched a business where I was practicing law and doing coaching and the family loss just seemed to be a very natural fit with doing the, the divorce coaching. And I had done family law earlier on in my career, so I just return to doing that. And now I have clients, you know, that I'm a lawyer for, um, in some I'm just a coach for and some I'm doing both. Wow. So not only are you a divorce coach and a family law lawyer, but you have also survived your own personal divorce. 
and admitted on your blog to dealing with depression and anxiety. Was this like your most stranded phase and how did you get out of it? You know, yes, post-divorce was definitely my stranded phase. And it was probably, uh, other than losing my mother when I was in my teens, it, it was the most difficult time of my life. I found at the same time that I was going through my divorce, my father had passed away. And uh, as I mentioned, my mother was already deceased. So he was my last parent. And my brother moved away. And then I had a one and a half year old and a three and a half year old. And so I kind of had all of that stuff happening at once. And, you know, being on my own with no real supports, um, you know, being depressed and being, you know, ridden with anxiety was something that like, not that anyone can afford to do it, but I really couldn't afford to do because I didn't have anyone who was going to be able to help me. I had to be able to work. I had to be able to function. I had to be able to do things. And so what I found myself doing at times was self-medicating. And I, you know, I had not been somebody who drank very much um, in my life prior to this phase. And I found that, you know, oh, that glass of Pinot Grigio, um, you know, it was kind of make taking the edge off of my day a little bit, or it was relaxing me uh, enough to, you know, do different things I needed to do or relieve the anxiety, boost the mood if I was feeling depressed. And I found that I went through this period of time where I started, you know, abusing alcohol in order to, um, you think it'd be the opposite. It would be holding me back from performing, but it was actually helping me perform because otherwise I would have been so ridden with anxiety and depression. I probably would have just wanted to stay in bed, but by having, you know, some wine, it was, you know, helping me feel confident, you know, that liquid confidence, the fake confidence, because it wasn't real confidence and, you know, not feel anxious and go out and do these things. And so I, there's a lot of high performing alcoholics <laughs> there are and that's the problem like we have this image of an alcoholic as somebody who is like the, the dirty old man living under the bridge with a brown Can't function bed. and yeah and there's a lot of functioning alcoholics and, and in the legal profession I see tons of them and, and other professions too and so it's easy to kind of delude yourself that because you're holding down a job and you're functioning that something isn't a problem and I found for me it was becoming a problem like I was you know drinking more often than I ever had in my life and it was leading to negative consequences and then you know you you reach a point where it's not fun anymore either and Mm -hmm. it is affecting your you know your performance on some level it's harder to get up in the morning after a night of drinking um, and things like that and so I went through a phase of having to deal with that and like I don't drink at all now but then also the shame I went through enormous shame for going through that phase um, because I'd always been a perfectionist. I'd always been an overachiever. I always thought that people who had problems with depression or anxiety or alcohol were weak. You know, I had all those stereotypes that had been ingrained into my head since I was a child. And now here I was, somebody, you know, experiencing those things. And I didn't think I was a weak person. And, but I was, you know, the, the, the inner critic was telling me, you know, you're weak, you're, you know, a loser, you should be a shame that this happened to you, you know, all of that. And so I was really stuck for a little while because my self-esteem was so low that I wasn't perfect anymore. Um, and I couldn't hide the fact that I wasn't perfect. And it took a lot of work to get out of that stage. That part about shame that you just talked about was so authentic, Leanne. Thank you so much for talking about that. And this whole pressure, I don't know how many people are listening right now, but I see it to be so true that we obsess over this like superwoman complex. We are like, we want to be perfect at all of our roles, or we were at least want to fake it to seem that way. And then the minute that we become transparent or visible to people that we're not perfect in these ways, that's when the shame comes head first is when other people see it. And I was so good at faking it, to be honest, that people in my life didn't even know I was struggling with an alcohol problem um, Mm. because I hid it so well. And I didn't want anyone, I was so ashamed. I didn't want to reach out to anybody to let them know that I was struggling. And so, you know, the the shame just was so intense for me. Um, and, And also because I had children at this time too. And it's like, I wanted my children to have this perfect storybook childhood and how can you have a perfect storybook childhood if your mother's developed a, an unhealthy relationship with Pinot Grigio um, you know and, and that was the reality um, you know and I was I felt uh, you know just 
enormous shame. And um, as someone who'd been a perfectionist, it's like, okay, well, when you're a perfectionist and you make a mistake, it's like you want to just give up because now you're not perfect anymore. And and if, so for me, it was really, really hard to to work through that phase and then and actually get to a point of feeling good about myself again, knowing I couldn't change. Like, that's what happened to me. I can't change it. There's some people who have negative, you know, there's still stigma out there as much work as has been done. There's still stigma with depression and anxiety and addiction and all of those things and people I know are always there's people who will think negatively of me because I experienced those things but I'm at a point now where I just I don't care I, I, I like I own it I went through it I don't care it's their problem if they think negatively but it took me a lot of work to get to this stage I love that you thank you for saying that it's because the thing is is even had you never went through that phase had you never had those issues had you continued being practicing law being a prosecutor being so perfect or at least in your mind you people still would talk about you People would find a way to talk about you. They always do. So yeah, exactly. People are going to criticize you, you know, no matter what. And ironically, like as I sit here today, having you know done the work and and overcome the challenges, and I'm you know mentally in a really good place now. I can actually say, and I never thought I would say this, that I am grateful for what I went through because I, number one, I am a better person because I'm not, I used to be, when I was in my twenties, I was so judgmental. Oh, like that would never happen to me. Oh, I can't believe how weak that person must be. Like all those judgments, I was throwing them out too. And, you know, now I'm more like, you know, there, but for the grace of God could be me. So I'm not going to judge anyone on what they're going through. So I am a better person. And, and secondly, like I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now if I hadn't gone through it. And and, and I love the stuff I'm doing now. And, and so I feel like I probably would have just stayed in the Crown Attorney's office and continued prosecuting and not been very happy and, you know, lived out my, my life, you know, in a fake way, hiding my inner you know, demons and, and, you know, frailties and weaknesses and, and not being real. And so conceivably, that's how I would have, you know, led out my life if this had not happened to me. So I am grateful for it. Leanne, I don't know who you were before that. But I like this version of you a lot. <laughs> I, I like this version too. And I like it, but you know, I, I just don't think I was like a horrible person or anything before. But I, I definitely was somebody who was insecure and had was always people pleasing and not being true to who I really am and keeping up this false you know sense of perfection and the reality is you don't connect as well with people when you're fake and it wasn't like I was like a superficial you know and I was never mean or anything but I, I would just I wasn't um, vulnerable with people because I had to keep up the, the facade of perfection so you don't connect with people the same way as when you actually are vulnerable and open about your struggles so that's made it you know I, I feel like that's made a big difference is you know I just feel way more connected to, to people you know going having gone through what I went through and talking about it and owning it and sharing it that makes you every part of who you are and like you said it, it the whole everything is connection and connection is made through vulnerability and, and relatability so you're probably building much more authentic relationships that are more meaningful to you now and your co even your coaching clients than you probably ever ever could have before that's amazing for sure and, and and again like just removing the whole judgmental side um because if you're judging people you're not going to be able to to help them in any way if you're if you're at the same time judging them for being in the situation that they're in and and now i just i really have no judgment about you know unless i've walked in your shoes i don't know what i would what i would do or how i would deal with something and you know i just think it, it, you you connect much better with people when you're not you know judging them at the same time and I, I should never speak of a beautiful woman's age, but you did tell me earlier um, that you went through this divorce and stranded phase when you were in your 40s. Right? Yes, I, I did. I like I'm 52 now. And I mean, I led my little miss perfect, you know, I wasn't obviously I wasn't perfect. But I led that life for a long time, um, you know, trying to be everything to everyone. And, 
and I think, you know, it was hard going through it in my 40s because, you know, in your 40s, you're supposed to have your, your act together, I think, a little more. And But I think because when I was younger, like my mother had passed away in my teens, so I kind of took on this motherly, responsible role. And I, so I didn't do a lot of, I didn't really do any irresponsible things or acting out or anything when I was younger. So I think it was almost developmentally, it's like I needed to do it a bit in my 40s um, just to, to kind of go through that phase. Unfortunately, it isn't like the age I would have wanted to do it at. But uh, nonetheless, I came out the other end and I'm in a better place. Oh, two things you said about that. One is I love that you said that, that you felt like you had to developmentally go through it because it's every time I meet someone that starts telling me that they found themselves in this place they never thought they would be in and they're like, 28, 31. And I'm like, well, have you ever done this before? Has this ever happened before? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, what's supposed to happen? You have to go through this phase. You have to, you have to veer off the path a little bit. It's almost required for you to get back on. It's kind of the way that you get like, you get rubbed out, like rubbed through and burnt out. And then they shake you out and the ashes fall off and you're brand new. Like it's almost required. Yes. And I think like just falling on your face a bit. I mean, you know, I think especially if you're someone who's an overachiever, who's not used to, to failing or falling on your face, it's an important skill. Like, you know, to be able to bounce back from that is huge. And I don't think in life you can ever achieve really tr true success at anything if you haven't really had an experience of being completely humbled and completely falling on your face and having to pick yourself up from that and rebuild and hold your head high despite how ashamed you feel or how you know embarrassed you feel or you know those sorts of things hold your head high and carry on and, it and probably, not care what people think right and it probably takes people year months or years after that amount of shame to look up and smile like you said you're finally grateful to look back on this but it probably takes people years to get there but to be self-aware enough to have that moment come and go, okay, like really be able to smile shortly after and say, okay, I get it. This is, this is that failure that needed to happen in order for me to be, be the best version of myself. Yes, exactly. It's almost it's, it's hard, but it's, it's so important to, you know, and, and I think nowadays, one of the, I guess, you know, there's a lot of criticisms of, you know, younger people and helicopter parents and people, children not being allowed to fail and children getting participation award, like everything, everyone gets an <laughs> award and everyone, nobody gets second place and, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I do agree with that to a point of that, you know, it is by our failures and our mistakes that we tend to grow the most. And I know that's certainly been the case for me, with me. And so, you know, that's when you really test your mettle is when you're in the, you know, that stranded phase, as you call it. And, and you know, you really have to dig deep and, and be willing to do the work else nothing's going to change. Because I, I know I felt literally like I was in a black hole and I didn't know how am I even going to get out of this hole um, it just felt so overwhelming in the moment, but but I did. And, you know, that's probably something in my life, not probably, it is something in my life that I'm most proud of because it, it it's not an easy thing to do, but people, you, you but it can be done and lots of people do it. And, you know, if you're in that phase and you're feeling that way, just know that there's hope because people do get out of it and life does get better and easier. I love this. Thank you so much for sharing this about you. I did not even know I was walking into this conversation today, but I'm so happy that I did. I wanted to talk about divorce, but we're talking about Leanne and I like it just as much. <laughs> and there's there's something else and I don't mean to harp on your age again, but I want someone someone that's listening to this. I know I've got some 20 somethings in my audience. I mean, I'm 29. If I've got some 20 somethings in this audience listening to this, I want to harp on what you said about spending 40 plus years of your life being perfect and super judgmental and then probably prior to your divorce and the loss of your father thinking that this side of you or this part of you could this could never happen in your life you would never find yourself in a shallow place and so if you're 20 something and you you can honestly look in the mirror and know we're all a little too judgmental but knowing that it can happen to you too. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me as well, like I, when I was in my 20s, when I was in university, when I was in law school, I hardly drank. Like, I, you know, I was not, no one would have ever 
like thought I would be somebody, and I certainly never thought that I would be somebody who would develop a a problem with alcohol in my life, you know? And so you just don't, uh, like, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know, so you shouldn't judge, but most of all, you shouldn't judge yourself because, you know, we're all our own worst critic usually. Um, That's the thing too. Like, often if you're judging others, you're judging yourself, you know, just as harshly and, and don't do that. Whew, I just talked about this on my social media today. I talked about that there is no such thing as balance for super moms, but there is such thing as forgiveness. And that's the only way to have good balance is to be forgiving of yourself and don't be your worst critic. Exactly. Uh, you know, and that's huge because that is like for most of my life, I, you know, I was so, I've always been so hard on myself and so unforgiving and beating up on myself and playing that tape, you know, that yo, you're worthless and you're, you know, fat and you're this, like that tape has been a big part of my life. And so, you know, I always say when I'm talking to, you know, younger people, like just like put a stop to that tape when you're in your 20s, because I wish I had, I didn't, I, you know, it took me to, to get to my late 40s or 50s before I really started changing that tape in my head. And life's too short. And to hold yourself back from doing things because you're telling yourself you're not good enough or you're this or that, you know, it's just, it's not worth it. And it can be changed, you know, mindset is everything. So we can all change our mindset. And so if you can become aware of it enough when you're in your twenties to do something about it, then you have that many more years of ahead of you in your life when you've got a good, healthy mindset. Yep. We talk about mindset a lot on the stranded. Speaking of, dealing with this like insurmountable amount of shame because of what you turn to to kind of survive this time in your life how many women are dealing with shame after divorce I I think there's a lot and I think you know depending on the circumstances of the, the the breakup but I mean women who've been in abusive relationships, they often have a lot of shame because they're embarrassed as to why they tolerated it, why they didn't leave, you know, and, and they shouldn't have that shame, but it's, you know, it's easy to, to say that they, they do. And then, you know, people who've been cheated on, they have their own, you know, their self-esteem has been beaten down. And, and, and I think there's just generally a lot of people have shame that their marriage didn't work out. It is, you know, they view it as a failure. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff to deal with. Wow. So, okay, so as a, I'm going to take this to like a millennial perspective. Marriage is such an interesting conversation to have with young people right now because either we're jumping the gun or we just won't even talk about the topic because <laughs> divorce is such a hot topic. And we're hearing horror stories about divorce. And I don't know if it's just because it's more publicized or it's just that ugly now. But why is divorce so tough? Why is this such a thing now? Well, I mean, I think it's tough because it affects everything in your life, right? If you get a divorce, it affects uh, where you're going to live. It affects how much money you have. It affects how often you're going to see your children. And, you know, for a lot of people, too, it even affects their identity. They've been, you know, known as Mrs. So-and-so or felt that they're part of this couple unit for so long. And so it really, it affects all of these key areas in our lives. So, of course, it's going to be, you know, really earth shattering or, you know, devastating when it happens because and there's a lot of fear right I think is I find in my legal practice and my coaching practice the two biggest fears people going through a divorce seem to have are one am I gonna run out of money or am I gonna have enough money to live and then the other one is am I gonna be alone the rest of my life will I ever find love again and and those are two big fears people have but they still get divorced. (laughs) (laughs) yeah Well, sometimes it's necessary. I read, I also read in a blog post where you did talk about that, like the loss of identity. And I totally could see that. I mean, even in a relationship for four years, if I lost my significant other, I'd probably lose a good, I would feel like part of me was walking away with the relationship. Is that's been a good portion or a quarter of my life at this point. What, what is your advice to the women or the men that you coach? to get their identity back? Um, Well, I advise them to think of, you know, hobbies that they enjoy and try and reconnect things that they felt passionate about or love to do 
even before the relationship and try and go back to doing some of those things. And, you know, it's just to, to try and re- reconnect with that person because, you know, I think too, a lot of us, when we get in a relationship, you know, often it's about compromise. And so sometimes there's things that we enjoy doing, or there's a part of us that we end up shutting down in the relationship to please the other person for whatever reasons. And, you know, you so you kind of lose touch sometimes with parts of yourself that are really a big part of yourself. So I always advise people to, you know, to join clubs or to develop hobbies. Um, definitely don't isolate and stay at home. Like put yourself, even though you might feel like it, to put yourself out there. And the other thing I, I always say too is a lot of women have a tendency when they're in a relationship, particularly one where they have children, is we tend to lose our identity as a woman and we just become like we're a mom. We're a wife and we're a mom. And, and even if you're working outside the home, it's like you still feel like you're just a wife and a mom. And you you lose sight of yourself almost as like a woman. And um, it's really important, I think, to reconnect with that part of yourself too. And and to, you know, especially if the, the relationship was bad on your, you know, hard on your self-esteem or you were, you know, you weren't feeling attractive or desirable, it's important to, to reconnect with that part of you. Yeah, having a, I always, it's so funny you say that because I've always committed to like keeping my passion project no matter what, because I have a, I have a one-year-old, I have a boyfriend and it was so important to me to keep my passion project. Um, and I've had people say like, well, why didn't you just do a mom podcast? And I feel so bad, but I'm like, Ooh, no, like, I don't want to just talk about being a mom. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that's a, that is my favorite job, but it is not my only job. Exactly. And that's, you know, my advice to people is like, you are a mom. And of course it's, you know, I'm a mom. It's a fundamental part of my identity. My children are the most important thing in my life. But having said that, I am, I'm not just a mom. I am other things too. And it is, and, and it's important to have those other things because you just don't know what's going to happen in life as well and obviously with children if you raise them properly at some point the idea is that they're going to leave the nest and Mm -hmm. become you know independent adults so if you put your whole life into them and you have nothing Mm. you know and then you you know and then what I see happening is they put their whole life into their kids and their husband the kids grow up and and as they should and have their own lives and then husband wants to divorce them and they're in their 50s or 60s and now they're in a real bind they've spent their whole life devoting it to these other people and now they have they you know feel like they have nothing and that's unfortunately more common than I'd like to see and you know, so I always say, like, to younger women, like, you know, make sure you do keep things that that you keep up things that you're interested in. There's nothing wrong with being a stay at home mom. I'm not saying that you necessarily have to have a career, but have things that you are passionate about that remind you that you're not just a mom. Yes, 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 yes. And that that actually helps me like keep my confidence at a level that it should be is my what I do for my passion because there are times where you fail as a mom and it's so human (laughs) it's so human you know but then I can always look at it the interviews I do or the the coaching clients I have and I'm like man I love doing this like this makes me so happy I feel so good that someone says oh you know you changed my week or you changed my day like that is so important to have for you to own you know what I mean like not your relationship not your child but own something that is your purpose or your passion that you can live in every day and and build confidence. For sure. Um, and, you know, and another thing I always say to people um, in relationships is that money in our society is power. And so if you're in a, a marriage and your husband handles all the finances and, you know, pays all the bills and maybe is the primary breadwinner and you have no clue what the financial situation is, if you ever do find yourself getting divorced, you're going to be in a really precarious situation because you you don't know where anything is and how much there is and and you're not comfortable with it and all of that and so I like and I you know get that a lot with people that come to me for a divorce and they you know it was the woman really knows nothing about the money and you know the the husband's hiding money or he's you know, able to kind of get away with a lot of things because she's just been so blind to any of the finances in the relationship. So that's a really important thing. I always say to people, it's an important part of empowerment is being financially empowered. Wow. So are you saying like when in a marriage, you should save your own money or you should be completely financially independent? Like, 
separate income, save separate money. Separate completely, but you just need to be aware of the finances. Like, be aware of what you know, who's earning what, and where it's going, and what the bills are, and what the debts are. Because that's another thing. You know, people find themselves in these situations where their spouses incurred these debts and they knew nothing about them and so the more in tune you are with the bank accounts and the credit cards and what's happening with them you know the better off you'll be if anything ever goes wrong and and it's not anticipating or or like putting out a negative you know attitude to the universe that oh I'm gonna end up divorced it's just being smart right no and it's it's not you don't ever want to plan to get divorced exactly you do want to be prepared you it's best to be prepared to be prepared. Yeah, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're more vulnerable than you need it to be. Especially and if you're I mean, I hate to say it this way, but if your husband is the breadwinner, you're, you're just to begin with, you're in a vulnerable situation, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable situation. For sure. For sure. So what is there a common theme or a number one reason why you see people get divorced that is like very the utmost reason? Yeah, there's a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, cheating is obviously one reason. But I think in most cases, even in in cases where there's been cheating, it's just people grow apart. Mm. And I, you know, I honestly, maybe this sounds like the, the divorce attorney in me, but I honestly think it's very hard to meet someone in your 20s and to stay with that same person till you die and you, you know, because life is, you, you grow, you go in different directions and unless you're really both committed to making that relationship work, which you should be, but so many people aren't nowadays, it's hard to, to you know, to keep it going and I think, you know, that touches on something else that I think is, is the problem is we live in this good vibes only kind of society. And so people, if a relationship becomes work, they think, oh, like I'm out of here. This is too much work. But it, it, there's going to be phases where it's work. And if you, you know, like anything worthwhile, if, you know, you have to, to work at it. Otherwise, it isn't going to, you know, work out. And then you're just going to keep going through that same thing in other relationships because they all get to a point where, you know, there's challenges and there's negativity and there's difficulties and you have to be able to work through those. It's all about going back to the core, which is the commitment. Yes. Wow. For sure. All right. So this is my big question. And I'm not saying that you're the expert and can tell us this, but in most of the cases that you see, like, I imagine being on the other side of the table and hearing someone's story going their their first story going into the idea of divorce. Do you feel like most cases could be resolved before before they come to you? Um, not not really. I, I would say. I mean, often I think with most people, divorce is really a last resort, and they've been in a very unhealthy relationship for a while. I mean, one thing that's been really eye opening to me is the number of people who are married who you know, sleep in separate bedrooms and have no, you know, intimacy for years and years and years. It's quite shocking to me that people, you know, live this way, but there's a lot of people doing it because usually by the time they come to see me for for legal advice or for the divorce coaching, like they've been, you know, unhappy for a while and they just, you know, finally mustered up the courage to actually do something about it and, and move forward. But it, you know, I think a lot of people just do say it's, it's a big decision for a lot of people, as it should be. It's not something you should do lightly. And I, I don't think people ju- are jumping to it, you know, too quickly. And so in terms of be- being able to say, I think marriage counseling is something that, you know, I think can help save a marriage. But often by the time people come to me, they've done marriage counseling and it didn't work. So they're ready. Wow. Sleeping in separate beds. I think I've only had like one friend that has done that for years and years and years. And I'm like, when my boyfriend takes my son downstairs just because he won't sleep to let me get some sleep and they sleep on the couch. The next morning, I'm like, why Why? Did, why were you not in bed? What were you doing? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I just wanted to give you some rest. I'm like, I don't care. I'd rather you, y- y'all, you know, you both bring him in the bed and both all of us sleep together. You know, I, I can't take it. Like... It's yeah. a whole not going, you know, don't go to sleep mad. Don't sleep separated. It's just, it's the course of the beginning of the end. Like, 
I can't take it. So I could not imagine like hundreds and hundreds of days of just no intimacy. Yeah, it's, you know, as they say, it's more like I found it very surprising the number of people who, you know, are living that way, you know, And, and I think a lot of people, you know, they stay together longer than they maybe should have. Sometimes it's for the children. And, and But I also think sometimes it's, it's for the financial piece because mm. to have your net worth suddenly, you know, cut in half or whatever, a lot of people don't. That's a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow or they can't even afford to have it happen. So they stay together because of that. Wow. You on your blog, we talk a lot about or you talk a lot about dating, too, which I thought was really interesting because dating does lead to marriage and unhealthy marriages lead to divorce. This is all <laughs> part of the formula. You yes. talked about FOMO which is like, to me, is such a millennial or 20-something term where, you know, you get this huge fear of missing out on things. But having FOMO while dating, which is almost like the grass is greener concept because people are looking, they're they're dating someone already, but they're looking for someone to complete them. And you had this quote that I was like, oh, say it twice. You said, <laughs> your next date is not going to make you feel like you're enough. Only you can do that. Yes. Yeah. T- Tell me more about that. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, it's true. I think a lot of people are, you know, they run around with this attitude that once they meet their soulmate or their prince or princess charming, then they will be happy. Then, you know, then they'll be complete. Then, you know, all these things. And this is like all my friends right now. (laughs) Yeah, No one else, if you're not happy, someone else is not going to make you happy. If you don't feel like you're enough or you don't feel like you're complete, someone else is not going to do that for you. First of all, it's not their job to, but secondly, they can't. You, it has to come from within. And so you have to be happy with yourself, happy with your life, happy with who you are, you know, on your own as a person and, and not expect to get that from a relationship. And in fact, if you are those things before you're in a relationship, then you're going to bring more to the relationship and you're probably going to have a, a happier and healthier relationship with someone because you're not, you know, looking to them to, you know, to complete you or fulfill you and putting your whole life into their, you know, being their responsibility. Oh my God. I'll throw myself under the bus. In 2000 and, <laughs> um, in 2016, like, cause ladies, men can treat us unfairly sometimes, but boy, we know how to play victim. Let me, <laughs> let me, in 2016, I went, I think it was 2015, 2016, I went back and got my master's degree because I was searching for more. I'd had the same job for a while. I was like, okay, it's time to do more. And I went back and got my master's and finished that. And I went through this trial year between uh, 2016 and 2017, where I got my master's, I kept the same job, I didn't get a raise, I wasn't doing any extra work. So I had felt accomplished in the process of getting my master's degree, but I didn't know what else I could do to feel more fulfilled. That's why I went back and got the master's because I thought, oh, I'm going to get a raise or I'll get more projects at work or something or I'll get a better job. And none of that happened. So I went through this year of like, what's next? What do I do? Yeah, I have a job, but I'm a, I'm a go-getter. I need more. I need the next goal. I need the... So that ended up transitioning into a mess in my relationship because I was constantly like knocking on my boyfriend, you know, like his door, like, well, you're doing this and it's, I'm not, I'm not happy. And why aren't we going on more dates? And why aren't we doing, you know, more things? And why do you have to go out with your friends? Why can't you go out with me? And it was like this, when I look back on it, I'm like, I was pestering the shit out of him. But now, and I've had a lot happen in the last two years, and I've done a lot of mindset development, a lot of self-development, a lot of working on making me happy, rediscovering my new passions, you know, helping other people do the same. I'm in love with who I am now. I could literally care less about the stuff I used to care about. I could care less. Like days go by and I don't even know what's going on because I'm so concerned about myself and it sounds self-centered and selfish, but it makes our relationship so much better because I'm happy. I'm happy with myself. Exactly. That's so important. It's so good that you like re- are realizing that at your age versus, you know, at, at my age, you know, because it is, it's so important. And I think, 
you know, nowadays in the dating world, because I know because I'm single, so I am out there. And so I think some of what I experience is similar to what, you know, millennials and, and people in their 20s experiences. You know, there's this thing of everyone, because of online dating, it's so easy to meet people that everyone always feels like there's somebody better, you know, the next click away, somebody that nobody wants to commit to anybody because, you know, there is just this concept of, you know, I'll, well, tomorrow, maybe I'll find someone even better. And and it's it, it kind of it's, it ties in with that fear of missing out philosophy too that you're you're afraid if you commit to one person that you're going to miss the the next best thing who was going to come along tomorrow. But I I almost think that that means and I know this is like so corny to say nowadays but I almost think that means that person's not the one because I've talked to so many guys that are like oh I love her and she's great but you know I'm just I'm just not sure like I'm not sure and then then now they're engaged or getting married soon. And I'm like, well, what happened to the not sure? Because it's a new girl or something. They're like, oh, I don't even think about that anymore. So either you mature through it or, you know, she wasn't the one. But I think everybody now is definitely going through this phase where they're with somebody, they've got all the right things, all the boxes are checked. You know, they think they're happy, but they can't really figure out, am I making a mistake by committing? Because what if on the other side of this person is... The next best thing. Yeah, I think for sure there's a lot of that going on, you know, at all ages, you know, and I, I, I don't know how that's going to change either because, yeah, no. you know, it's like I don't, online dating I think has really changed the dating world and changed relationships and it's not going to be going away anytime soon. So I, I'm not sure, you know, what that's going to mean for, you know, long-term relationship. Although interestingly, I read something the other day that I thought was kind of interesting was that apparently in the last time of years the divorce rate has dropped and they're attributing it to millennials <laughs> go us <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, uh, they're saying that millennials are being they're they're getting they're getting married at like an older age so they're being they're being more selective about who they put you know marry and so they're you know, they're the waiting women, longer they're waiting longer and apparently like they you know they looked at this these statistics from a variety of angles and the theory that they felt, you know, seemed to really stack up and explain it was that it's millennials and their attitudes and whatnot have, have had an effect on the divorce rate. So go us. Go figure. That's right. Ooh, yeah, it's like dropped to like 18%, right? <laughs> yeah, it was significant. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's interesting. I mean, to see how it plays out going forward, whether, you know, that continues, uh, you know, that would be a good thing for sure. I mean, I'm basing off, I'm basing this off of a small variable, but I could definitely see it because all of my friends are like, now I need some years before I decide if I'm, you know, years and years. People, all of my friends want four or five years before they decide whether they're going to marry someone. Whereas I remember like coming out of high school, I had friends getting married in a year and a half, two years. And I was like, yeah. what? Ah! Like I remember the second year of my relationship and I'm like, if I would have married you then, I would, we, it would have, we would have killed each other. <laughs> that, was, that was just after the honeymoon yeah. phase. Like yeah. stuff just started to get ugly. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's true. And I and I also think millennials as a generation, just from where I sit in my perspective is I think you guys are more self aware than a lot of previous generations. And so maybe that helps too when you're because you have a better understanding of yourself when you go into a relationship, you're, you're bringing that and so it's more liable to be, uh, you know, a successful, healthy relationship. Absolutely. I don't think I mean, there's cases, of course, but I don't think anybody's typically the victim if we spend our relationships working on ourselves, and it's the right one, it'll pretty much work itself out. Yeah, I think so. So last question for you. How because this is what I feel like I feel like all my single girlfriends are dealing with right now. How does someone know when they're on the dating scene, whether they've had just they've just had a couple of bad dates in a row by coincidence, or if it is really them? Like they need to go back to the drawing board and fix themselves. You know, that's a good question because, you know, I, what I want to say is that, you know, it's not, it's not, it's never you, it's, you know, you've just met the wrong people. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we could all be in places where we are dealing, doing something wrong or we haven't healed from stuff that's happened before. And, and so we're bringing that to, you know, to situations. And I mean, I guess that's where we just all, we always have to be very self-aware and, and look at things. And if, you know, are there patterns is are we seeking out you know I know myself like I've gone through phases you know when I was in my my stranded phase (laughs) (laughs) I you know I had a habit like I was dating and I 
you know, I would seek out the wrong men. Like I would seek out men who were either emotionally unavailable or they were just people, they were fun, but they were like good time guys you'd never have a long-term relationship with. And I think, you know, on a subconscious level, I was seeking them out because I wasn't ready. I thought I was. I thought I wanted to be in a long-term relationship, but I don't think I was ready for that. Uh, But I wasn't aware of it consciously yet. But, you know, when I became more aware and I look back on the patterns of behavior, I can see what I did. And so I think that's the difficulty with it is if you haven't healed and you're not, you know, yet aware that you still have healing to do I think it's hard to in the moment be able to see that about yourself but I think you know if you if you're still dwelling on past relationships or you still feel angry or you know bitter and those types of emotions then you're probably not ready to you know, be dating a lot or be certainly be going into a serious relationship. I agree. I, <laughs> I read on your blog and I loved your honesty. You were talking about how like when you first thought you were ready to date again, that you would like drive a hundred miles to go meet and have <laughs> coffee with a guy to get to yeah. know him and you don't even drink coffee. <laughs> So it's almost like the, not to say that you were desperate, but it was the disparity to get out of that feeling of whether it was loneliness or to feel like you had a companion or to take away the sadness. You were looking to get out of, to put that feeling onto someone else or get out of the feeling you were in. And you think you're ready, but you're not. It's almost like operating at a 50% battery. It's like now when you're whole, you were saying like, now that I'm, I'm happy and I'm me, I'd rather, if a guy asked me to drive a hundred miles, I'd rather sit on my couch and watch Netflix alone than drive a hundred miles to do something that I don't want to do. (laughs) Exactly. No, for sure. And I think that like the loneliness piece is a part of it. And then also, you know, I think earlier on in my journey, I, you know, I was such a people pleaser. So it'd be like, you know, like somebody wants me to do that. Oh, of course I'll, you know, it was like having that low self-esteem and people pleasing that, you know, oh, if I don't do that, then maybe he's not going to come to me. And, you know, maybe he's a group, maybe he's my soulmate. So I need to do that. Whereas now I have a totally different attitude about it. I love it. Yeah. Like now I feel like anyone who would expect me to do that is definitely not my soulmate. So, you know, I don't want them anyway, you know, you expect me to drive 100 miles. Clearly, you're not for me. (laughs) Exactly for coffee when I don't even like it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, you were fantastic. I know every woman or or man that gets an opportunity to work with you definitely leading them in the right direction. And I praise you for the work you do because it's it's probably, you know, dealing with people in some of the toughest times that they're dealing with. So amen to the work you do. And I just want you to leave everyone with a way they can stalk you check out your blog, where can they find you? Uh, well, my website is www.leannetownsend.ca. So my blog is on my website. You can find out more about me, my services, and my blog there. I'm on Instagram as Leanne Townsend Life. I'm also on Twitter, Leanne Townsend. I'm on Facebook, again, Leanne Townsend, lawyer, advocate, and coach. And my coaching programs are, are international. So like I can only practice law in Ontario. So if someone has a legal issue, you have to be in Ontario to, to use my services. But coaching, I do via Skype, Zoom, phone calls. So I do, I have had clients in the US. I can do, I can coach anyone from anywhere. Well, thank you for the vulnerability about your story and the honesty and uh, kind of maneuvering us through what we hope in the future will get better, which is the divorce rate and people dealing with this stressful time. So thank you so much, Leanne, for joining us on The Stranded Phase. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.